Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Please, dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, I know I say it every week or every time, but really should come to the dispatch.com to check things out. We've been firing on all cylinders now. Um, subscriptions are flying. Uh, we, uh, um, I think have kind of hit our stride in the last week and we have much greater things yet to come. So with that, uh, we have a return guest. I'm not, he, he was our, he was on our, I believe our second episode of this podcast. And, um, not only is he a handsome man, he's a powerful man. Uh, and I only say that because he's my boss at AI, but, uh, I'm not sure he gets the five time gold jacket yet, but if he doesn't, he's close. He's definitely probably the most referenced living intellectual on this podcast uh takes a far back seat to to people like irving and burke but uh but they have the advantage of having a uh fuller career let's say than uh you've all who's still in midlife uh you've all live in of the american enterprise institute welcome back to the remnant thanks very much for having me it's great to be back um, okay, so we had Keith Whittington on uh, earlier this week, and we did pure deep dive into the history and the the rules and the precedents for impeachment. So I don't know that we need to do that again. But on a just a broad level, including rank punditry, if you want to offer it, where do you come down on what Trump did? What do you think? If you could write the actual bill uh, articles of impeachment, what would it, what would it be for? Or are you just simply against impeachment altogether? Well, I think what Trump did was clearly impeachable. Um, he he riled up a mob and sent them to the Capitol, and then basically celebrated what they did and had to be forced and dragged into saying that they should stop. I think that the particular phrasing of the impeachment article is unfortunate. It's an example of a kind of overly lawyerly way that a lot of legislators think about their job. And so it's framed as a kind of legal indictment for incitement, which is a particular federal crime. And I don't think the president could actually be found guilty of that crime in court, but I also don't think that matters. And this is an instance where, and there are a lot of instances like this, where members of Congress need to understand their particular job in the system as distinct from the job of a lawyer or a judge. So that I think that an article of impeachment against the president should have just said that he plainly violated his oath of office by his behavior on January 6th, discuss a little bit of what that behavior was. There was a failure to protect and defend the Constitution, that it was a kind of assault against it instead and that therefore it was plainly impeachable. 
Um, that said, I do think it was impeachable. So I would have voted for impeachment and I would vote for conviction too. Um, so I, it seems to me that this is a question for legislators as constitutional officers. And even though it's framed in an overly lawyerly way, I, I just think there's very little question that the, the president's behavior here uh, deserves impeachment, warrants it. And, you know, it raises all kinds of other questions about whether the Senate can proceed with a trial after he's out of office and the rest of it, which are also constitutional questions to be resolved by legislators. And in that sense, a kind of useful experience for a lot of members of Congress who think that these kinds of things belong in court rather than in their hands, but who are actually responsible here. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that's all fair. I agree with you about the language of the articles um, as such. Um, I mean, I, I, I hate that like Chip Roy, who I think is at the end of the day, a pretty honorable guy, uh, yeah. that, that, the, that Pelosi gave him a plausible excuse but at least what Chip Roy said was what he did, what he did was impeachable. What he did was outrageous. But I'm against this because the language here is about incitement and blah, 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 blah. And it gave him a political out. Uh, but at least he condemned it, right? which is a lot, not what a lot of other Republicans did. Um, so, you know, people like him and Mike Gallagher, I can be disappointed, but I'm not angry. You know, um, that said, um, I th tell me why I'm wrong. I. I think everybody, not everybody, but lots of people are too focused on the violence. Um, violence was terrible, right? But uh, government officials, presidents often do things that lead to violence that, you know, well, I put that aside. To me, the incitement isn't that he said, be strong, show strength, fight, all that kind of stuff. That is typical political boilerplate, right? To me, the incitement, is that he, in a coordinated, premeditated, uh, ongoing conspiracy against the common welfare, or whatever phrase you want to use, lied to the American people about an election being stolen and claimed that if they didn't force Mike Pence, at the end of the day, right, which was sort of their plan C, to commit a flagrantly and transparently unconstitutional act that uh, the country would go to hell and that China would have a stooge in the Oval Office and blah, 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 blah. And plus, they also stole the election, right? So the incitement to me was creating that alternate reality and then telling people, this is your last chance to stop the country from going down the tubes and an election being stolen. And like, I mean, the analogy I keep using is if someone locked my if someone showed me a, a fake video or a Photoshop fake photo of my kid locked away in some chamber where there was running out of oxygen and said, you have one hour to kill you all of them, um, or she dies. I'm sorry, I'd probably kill you, but, um, well, good luck trying. Yeah. Whatever shame you're Wiley, whatever shame, <laughs> you know, accrues to me for believing it or for doing it or whatever. The person who convinced me of this crisis situation is the person who incited me to violence. And, um, and moreover, I just don't think the violence is essential here. If the crowd had been peaceful, the organizers were honest. Their plan was to intimidate Congress, impede it from doing its constitutional function, and to commit an unconstitutional act. That, that just seems on its face to me impeachable. 
I agree with that. And I, and I think that that is a reason to think that the language of incitement in the article is the wrong way to, to approach this. But yes, I think the president's behavior in the wake of the election generally in the, the that recorded call with the two Georgia election officials in what he had to say on Twitter in the lead up to January 6th, in what he said to that crowd and in what he said to the country afterward, is not only unpresidential, but ultimately unconstitutional in some important ways. And that does require an idea of constitutional that reaches further than what we normally allow that term to reach. And I think it is important that we see in this moment an argument for thinking about constitutional in that broader sense, which we should do more often, and for seeing that the Constitution defines a set of responsibilities. That's what office means. And it defines a a series of offices and institutions, each of which has a set of responsibilities. The, the, The failure to uphold those responsibilities is what we're talking about here as a failure of constitutional obligations. And that's what impeachment is about. So I, I think it should be, I think the article should have taken a broader approach. And that in any case, our, our debate now about how to approach Donald Trump and how to think about him should take all of that into account. His behavior since the election has been, first of all, just bonkers. I mean, it has been crazy in a way that we should not permit our presidents to be. And of course, that didn't start after the election. Um, and it has been dangerous to the constitutional order in a very direct and straightforward way. So um, we were talking about it very briefly uh, before we started recording. Um, our mutual friend Rich Lowry has a piece in Politico where he's pretty harsh on Michael Anton, the author of the Flight 93 election essay. And I would say he, was, he wasn't unduly harsh. He was duly harsh. In fact, I think as, as I mean, it's harsh. I mean, but it's. You could be harsher. I mean, I, I, I am I am pained to think of a, an essay by an intellectual of in the last ten years, if not twenty, that has done more real world damage to American life and American politics than the Flight ninety three essay. And again, it was part of the zeitgeist, and he just articulating with something that was already out there and all the rest. Where do you see the Flight 93 mindset, the catastrophization of politics, which is, I think, one of the main drivers of our problems? Um, Do you think it's going to get worse on the right? Do you think it's going to get better? Well, it's a strange problem because that kind of, of catastrophizing often happens to a party when it's out of power. And in some ways, that is what the Flight 93 essay embodied a sense that the other side being in power means we're approaching the end of the world. The strange thing that has happened on the right over the last four years, one of a number of strange things, has been that that attitude has been sustained while Republicans have been in power and in some ways have been, has been exacerbated because we've had a president who hasn't really used power except to allow himself a greater platform for voicing that kind of attitude. And so I think it has gotten sharper and more intense over this period. And surely we should expect that to happen when there's a Democratic president doing all kinds of things, some of which will genuinely be bad for the country, I'm sure, uh, one way or another. And so I, I worry very much that, the, that this kind of catastrophization, that the sense that the country's biggest problem is the other party, um, is going ha- is, is to be very, very hard for us to get away from. 
it has to be said, both parties at this point basically think the country's biggest problem is the other party. Right. Um, it, it's just peculiar that Republicans have not only persisted in thinking so, but have thought so to an even more intense degree, while their party has more or less been in power. I think that's just been part of the dysfunction and the failing of this period. Um, I brought up this a little bit with our colleague Matt Continetti not too long ago. Um, one of my, it's an understandable tendency, but it's a peeve of mine where historians, political historians, intellectual historians, when they talk about people who were in previous eras, radicals, right? Whether of the left or of the right, um, John Bircher's, um, you know, uh, the radical sort of uh, black power movement, uh, whatever it is, right? There is this tendency to treat ideological conviction as if it is just simply an analog to identity politics, that um, you, that there is this constant demographic um, of people who hold these ideological convictions, who hold them as if it was their skin color or their gender, right? And some, some, I mean, I know gender is now supposed to be mutable, but you know what I mean? It was like this, they were born blue-eyed, they were born John Birchers. And the problem is that when you ever actually meet people who go radical, they didn't start that way. Something triggers them, right? It's, it's, so there is some, there is, there's always been something in the, it's sort of like an epigenetics versus genetics thing. In there's always been something on the right of a certain kind of conspiracy theory, conspiratorialist, um, radical and radical populism. And there's always been that kind of DNA on the left too. And they just manifest themselves differently. But it sure as hell feels to me like the, that a lot of people that we both know who, who have been normal for most of our lives, we don't need to name names, uh, have kind of lost their gourds, right? I mean, and there's, and, and do you have a back of the envelope theory about what that process is? Do you think it's different for different people or, um, and do you have a theory about, or knowledge about if this has happened in the past? I mean, have John Birchers, did John Birchers ever de-radicalize and become normals again? Um, what is your theory about all that? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it, it's been a mystery that I've confronted over and over with people that I know too, of course. Um, I, I, I would say my sense is that there are a number of things going on. One of them is this polarization, the sense that the country's biggest problem is the other party, and therefore, whatever it takes, whatever embodies our opposition to the left is what the right is. I think it's also connected to a broader transformation from a, a something more like a politics of what direction should the country head in to a politics of who gets to have power. And these things are always both present in any kind of, of democratic political culture. But I think that the question of who is in power has become much more central to our politics in the 21st century than it was at the end of the 20th century. And that means that the question that really matters is, are we winning or losing more than what are we achieving on the policy front? What are we losing in deliberations in Congress? What, are we, what did this president achieve? What do we think about entitlement reform? Those kinds of questions are about what direction we stand for. We're now in a place where what matters much more to most people is 
who gets to be in charge. And if us getting to be in charge means that today what we want on entitlement reform is the opposite of what we wanted yesterday, then fine. But the, the real question is who's in charge. And the, the ideological questions become just much less important. You combine that with some underlying changes in the reality of, of, of American life and American politics where um, some concerns about the about working class economics, some concerns about uh, populist politics really are just more important than they used to be. They've, there are problems now that weren't the core problems 30 and 40 years ago. And I think you end up in a politics where it just matters less to people what the ideas are, and it matters more to people that they win and not lose. And so I, I think a lot of that is combined together with this sort of politics of uh, cult of personality, with getting caught up in the media bubble, which is much more of an insular bubble than it would have been a generation ago. Um, and it just, w w the, the way I feel about it is you almost run across people who are talking out of another reality. Um, and it's almost like I'm just watching them operate in that reality from the outside. They're not talking to me. I'm not talking to them. They're, they're working for a different sort of audience somewhere. And what they're doing just makes more sense in that world than in this world. And I mean, they do that personally, directly. There are politicians who certainly you can see when you catch them on C-SPAN giving a speech, they're obviously just talking to somebody else, not me. That's clear. Mm -hmm. But you could sit with them in a room and have a conversation, and they're still in that place because their sense of their purpose, of their role, of their relationship to their constituents, of their connection to the larger political culture has somehow been fractured, somehow been deformed. I think all these forces are in play in one way or another, but you know that, that suggests that this is overdetermined in a way that um, can't be explained by any one thing. I, I think it's a phenomenon that it has had to do with a lot of the stranger facets of our of our politics in these last few years. So, and I got asked this question by a, a reporter who wanted to interview me for a book that uh, they're working on yesterday. Um, if you had to predict right now, um, broadly defined, like, like oh, the, the crazy QAnon woman being one extreme example or Louis Gohmert or, you know, whatever. Um, who, in the near term, mid term and long term, who do you think are going to be the winners? The, the normals or the abnormal or the weird ones um, in the GOP? You know, I think that in the, well, first of all, let me say this. Predictions are always wrong. Mine are anyway. And so I incline to predictions that point in a constructive direction and give us something to do. And so they uh -huh. tend to be hopeful, not because that's exactly my expectation of the future. I don't know what the future holds. I have no idea. It's very Birkin of you, not prediction, but prescription. I like yeah, it. Yeah, I, I think like we, should, we should ask ourselves, <laughs> what should we be doing so that the right future can happen rather than what's going to happen as if we're just observers on the outside? Um, and, and so it, it, it seems to me that there, there are ways for, um, for reality to reassert itself in our, in our politics, in our institutions. Some of those ways have to do with the failures of what we've been dealing with for the last few years. I mean, I think that what happened uh, in Washington on January 6th has opened some eyes, and that's a good thing, and has led some people to think that maybe this 
kind of confrontation between reality and fantasy is extremely dangerous, or that maybe some of what they've been told is not true. I think that for that to endure and make a difference, there do have to be people who are willing to make the case for a more normal politics. And that's extremely difficult now for politicians to do. That is to say that, look, the right is basically overrepresented in American politics, and we should be glad of that and try to use that in ways that advance what matters to us, that protect what we think is important and endangered, uh, and that allows us to achieve something. So that even now, having just lost a presidential election, the Republican Party is in a pretty strong place. If it wanted to do something useful, it really could. And here's what that could be, right? I, I don't think there's a lot of that going on in our politics right now. I think there's a niche for it. I think that there, that, that there are ways for politicians to advance themselves by doing that. And some of the incentives could align in ways that let them do it. But Let's face the fact. I mean, the, the, most of the incentives they face as they see them are more like media incentives than they are like traditional political incentives. And so I think that there are more people today who are willing to speak up for a functional politics than there were two weeks ago, but there aren't enough. And the question is, how can you help create incentive structures that let these politicians see that it's in their interest? to stand up for, for reality, to stand up for conservative ideas, uh, to fight the Biden administration where it needs to be fought in ways that actually point in some constructive direction. I don't think it's impossible for that to happen. I think we probably are in a, in a mode of overstating how crazy things have gotten and how much of the Republican electorate is caught up in these sorts of conspiracies. It's very hard to know. It does seem like it's more than it has been in the past. Um, but it's also the case that almost no one is trying to speak to the rest of the Republican coalition, whatever that consists of now, and to offer something that seems more like a more traditional form of political leadership that says, look, this is the situation. Let's make the most of it and see what we can achieve. I want to find those people and help them do their work. And that's our job at AI. That's, our, that, that's what national affairs is for. That's a lot of what people like us should be trying to do. They certainly exist. And so you know, the, 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 the future hasn't been written yet. And the question is, can this kind of more, on one hand, you want to say traditional, but I think it's also just possible to say constructive, responsible approach to politics. Can it also be a winning approach? Uh, and we'll have to see. So in your Pollyannish glasses, <laughs> half full version of all of this in which you dodge the need to make a prediction uh when you so people i talk to on the hill people some of my colleagues talk to on the hill um also just from some reporting the sense is is that if the it had been a secret vote on impeachment um you would have had 60 or 70 more republicans voting for yeah. it and some of them claim to be actually afraid for their lives, which is another reason to impeach the president of the United States if ever there was one. Um, but other people are just afraid of being primary. And um, so do you look at the fact that only 10 Republicans, um, you know, led by Liz Cheney, actually voted to impeach, but that call it 50 or 60 more would have liked to if, if for whatever reason they felt they could have? Um, do you see that as a 
opportunity. <laughs> you know, I mean, is, is your position that that's that is something we can work with and build on, or is that a sign of the depth of the problem that we have? Well, look. So I, I, I'm I, I'm Jewish. Ten is better than zero, but <laughs> um, obviously it's a problem. Uh, th- th- look, ten ten Republicans in the House is is a little less than five percent of the Republican conference in the House. That's not a uh, that that's not a portion of the uh, that's not a portion of the congressional delegations that is going to work as a as a way of trying to govern or of offering an alternative to what the left is going to try to do in the next four years. I, I would only say that I think that if you if you take whatever golden age of conservative policy work you want to point to, whenever that might be in, in your own memory, and ask yourself how many Republican members of Congress were really involved in the work that made it possible for, for this progress to get made, I suspect it wouldn't be all that different than about 5%. Now, the other 95% were not involved in advancing a conspiracy theory destructive to the constitutional order um, at that time. But to say that only 5% of Republicans are willing to be engaged in the work of governing is one thing. I think our situation is worse than that, obviously. We have an enormous challenge to confront here. But I, I, I wouldn't underestimate the, the potential of a small kind of leadership group to move the party to a place that is not only better for the country, but more livable for their colleagues. As you say, there are people now, some at least claim to be afraid for their lives, but in any case, they're afraid mm-hmm. um, to engage in that more traditional form of politics. I think there are modes of leadership that could help them be less afraid of that and see some advantage in that. Republicans have done that before. I, I, more than that, though, it, it, it seems to me that there is a great desire to put the Trump era behind us among a lot of Republican politicians, many more than are willing to actually take a leadership role in a moment like this and have the courage to do that. And so we are, one way or another, going to put the Trump era behind us. There's there's going to be, you know, God willing, uh, a, a peaceful transfer of power very soon here. The question is what the next phase looks like. Donald Trump may still have a role in that, obviously, may still try to influence it and succeed in influencing and all that. But basically, it, it, there's going to be a next phase of American politics. And Republicans in Washington are going to have to think about what they want their part in that next phase to be. And I think there are opportunities there for that next phase to be somewhat more constructive, to be a phase of recovery and a phase of reform, too. A, a situation where nobody's happy with the status quo can be an opportunity if you enter that situation with something to offer, with some ideas for how to change things and make them better. I think right now the Republican Party is very, very short on those kinds of ideas, but that's not to say that there's not an opportunity to work into. But don't get me wrong, I'm not Pollyannish about this. This is a terrible moment in the life of our country. It's a terrible moment for the right. It's a terrible moment for the Republican Party. And it's not a great moment for the left either. We face enormous mm-hmm. challenges here and, and shouldn't underestimate those. So, I mean, I, look, I, mean, I, I basically agree with you. Um, and I think you're right that there's a widespread interest to get beyond the Trump era. The driving factor, it seems to me, of the dysfunction right now is that while even Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley want to get beyond the Trump era. They want to get beyond the Trump era while holding on to Trump's voters. And so, yeah. 
and because we live in an era where we have made the presidency into uh, avatars or icons of the culture war, people, I mean, that's why you hear this argument constantly about how criticizing Trump is an insult to 75 million voters, right? I mean, I, I can't watch Fox for in three minutes without somebody saying, that's what this is. This really isn't about Trump. This is about you. They hate you. They hate you. And it's very difficult to get into a post-Trump era while still making those arguments. Because to, to actually say we need to move beyond Trump is an insult to Trump. And that runs afoul of the very logic that you're imposing on people. Yes, I, I agree with that. I think, though, that there's a difference between moving past the Trump era and returning to the pre-Trump era. And some of the energy that you see around uh, the kinds of arguments that Holly and Cruz were making has to do with a desire to sustain a focus on some of the issues that people have attached to Trump. I don't think Donald Trump has actually been about uh, changing our attitude toward the, the, the situation of working class Americans or even all that much about trade or China. People have tried to attach to him various ideas that they think the party should be moving toward. And some of those, not all of them in my view, but some of those in my view are ideas that the party should be moving toward. I think the Republican Party has needed to change its approach to the country and its policy agenda for a long time. I hope that can happen after Trump, but it cannot happen as an extension of the cult of personality around Trump or the cult of loyalty that says that basically, as you say, Trump stands for all his voters. And so whatever he says and does is what they want. And therefore, it's impossible to draw any lessons from the past four years to, to see some of what's happened, most of what's happened as a set of failures for us to learn negative lessons from. That's absolutely crucial for Republicans to do if they're going to succeed. And, you know, obviously, the resistance to that has to be overcome. I think some of this just has to be a matter of traditional political struggle. People with different ideas about what to do next need to argue it out with each other and see who wins. So I, I wasn't going to do this, and uh, we did get some questions from, uh, as, as uh, my assistant Nick calls it, the demos. But, um, so I've been, but I've been thinking about, I think I'm going to write the G-file about this tomorrow, and usually it's bad luck for me to talk about what I'm going to write about in advance because it loses the verve and panache but um i'm sure you get asked this question probably even more than i do but i'm sure you get asked it a lot regardless you know how do we get out of this right i mean that is basically the question that you know as you like to say with all your institutional arguments the first question you should ask is what is my role here and you as the editor of national affairs and it's the head of your department ai that's the question you have to ask all the time is how do we get out of this mm -hmm. right so my answers are usually stuff like you know the gratitude stuff or, you know, civics or federalism, lots of 40,000 foot things that require a generational effort. And, um, and I, I, I had this idea for a long time, but it just sort of crystallized recently. Um, so tell me what you think of this, like in terms of something that a relative handful of people could actually do to make this a better country is if, um, Specifically, and this I may lose my contractor Fox for floating this idea, but uh, if television producers stopped booking the shout shows and, and the news shows, which are more important in some ways, where every disagreement had to be left right, 
One of the great things about think tank life, and I've spent over a quarter century in and out of think tanks, is that, you know, at AEI, we have scholars who are passionately in favor of income of child tax credits and passionately opposed, right? And mm-hmm. carbon taxes and passionately opposed, passionately for, blah, 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 blah. And the best arguments, going back to the days when I used to produce a TV show called Think Tank, um, tend to be among people who share first principles, but disagree about how to achieve them or implement them or act on them. And one of the reasons I think why we're where we are is that it is standard practice across cable television news to, to frame every debate as if this is what all conservatives believe. And if you disagree with what these three conservatives we put on this TV show believe, then you are definitionally a liberal. And so for four years at Fox, basically the audience had it pounded into them that there were no serious conservative arguments against Trump or no serious conservative arguments against anything Trump was doing. And if there were serious arguments, they were only voiced by liberals and therefore you get to disregard them. Same thing on MSNBC, same thing to a certain extent on CNN. And this left people in a tribal and polarized time with the inability to say, you know, denied them a certain amount of permission to say, I disagree with what Trump is doing, but there are none of the legitimizers, right? None of, if, if politics is becoming a secular religion, a political religion, um, then the priests are people like Mark Levin and Hannity and, and, you know, uh, Rachel Maddow and whatnot. And if those people tell me that there is no safe Harbor on my tribe for disagreeing with what we're doing, you know, like I just did a thing with Yasha Monk. It's going to air this Saturday and he is very nervous and maybe reluctant to impeach Trump. My hunch is that there are very few liberals who are on MSNBC right now saying maybe we shouldn't impeach him. His mm-hmm. arguments are from a liberal point of view, but if you never hear the contrary points of view, you think that your own side is deeply homogenized and, 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 and uniform in its thinking about every granular and every particular. And it seems to me that you, in, in a post when in, a, in, in the world where all media is balkanized, feeding people those kinds of messages is really, really dangerous because it tells people you have to go along with the full program. And, you know, and I can tell you for the last four years, I would meet people on National Review Cruises, you know, at conservative events who were definitely supportive of Trump, but they'd be like, why can't he stop with the tweeting? Um, you know, he's his own worst enemy. Why does he have to be so crude? You just weren't allowed to, you weren't invited on Fox if you were going to make that point in public, even though that mm-hmm. represented the majority opinion. And so um, I bring this up simply because it seems to me an actual low-hanging fruit practical thing that someone could actually do. Does it make sense to you? Am I missing something? It does. I, I think that it points to a way, it, it points to the question of how do you approach that challenge of what do we do? And I think the way you approach that challenge in the big picture is to ask yourself where I am, given my roles and my responsibilities and my power to change something, what can I do? So that if you are a a TV news producer, a cable news producer, then that's certainly something you could do and something you should do. I think that argument should be made to those sorts of people. That's a kind of question, though, that can be asked of lots of people in and around the system and also of people well beyond it, of citizens in general. 
you know, how can I broaden my sense of what's possible in politics or what people believe? There are ways to answer that at every level of American life. I think for us, well, let me say for me, I, I think the answer to that kind of question looks like ways of thinking about what forms of both public policy work and institutional change can change the infrastructure of how our politics happens in constructive ways. For example, I think that we're at a moment now that is analogous to the moment in the the, the mid-1970s when originalism was born, when Mm -hmm. a bunch of conservatives thought that uh, America's understanding of the role of the courts had become so deformed that it had to be rebuilt from scratch. And there was some intellectual work around that where originalism really was born uh, at AEI above all uh, in the work of people like Scalia and, and Bork and others. Then there was institutional work and the Federalist Society came to be. Then there was a long process of professional institutional formation. And they succeeded tremendously. Um, in in building new institutions and changing old ones in a very, very constructive way. I think we face a moment that's a little bit like that, but around Congress and not the judiciary. So that in the world where I work, there there has been a total loss of understanding of the purpose of the legislature in our system of government. And its purpose is exactly to enable our society to argue out differences, to reach accommodations, to uh, to recognize the, the different sorts of factions that exist around different sorts of issues. And I think there is now a calling for intellectual work around the question of how to understand our system of government with Congress at its center, for institutional work to reform Congress and, and change some of the incentives people face, uh, and for a long process of changing how we think about our, 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 our roles as citizens, their roles as legislators, our system of government. That's, that, that, I think, is one example of the kind of work that can be done if you ask yourself, given what I can do, which inherently isn't much, mm-hmm. w- what would be constructive? I think that similarly, there are people all around our political system who could approach politics a little differently, who could think, who could try to, to put policy a little more front and center and put some of the uh, kind of who rules questions a little bit further in the background. There are obviously ways for politicians themselves to think a little differently about how to approach this problem of political culture um, and pull us back from a place where it seems as though our politics is just one big yes or no question uh, all the time. And so I I, I say this because I think the kind of solution you offer is something that some people could do and could really mm-hmm. advance, um, and that would make some difference. I mean, we shouldn't overestimate how many people oh, no, really watch cable a, news and I'm all that. I'm not saying it's a silver bullet or anything like that. I just think that the, it, it's an example I, of what real people could do in the real world. And right, that's I do all think I mean. There are a it's, lot it's, of those. It's a, yeah, it's yeah. low hanging fruit is uh, in it more than anything else. And and but I also think conv- so. This is a long standing argument of mine going back twenty years that the original strength of the of the conservative movement going back to the period of the 1970s that you're talking about and even earlier with the founding of national review is that Nash, that that conservatives have had an open and honest and good faith culture internal culture of arguing amongst ourselves of mm-hmm. debating things and then part of my argument I don't want to get into the weeds about philosophical pragmatism and progressives, but, but the liberalism was gelded in some ways as a robust philosophy by the rise of, of American pragmatism, because it 
it reduced everything to power, right? It had, you know, the William James cash value kind of thing where everything was devolved to notions of expertise and power and results and instrumentalism rather than talking about first principles. And conservatism in many ways was a response to that and Ameri- modern American conservatism. And, and, and one of the things starting with basically Buckley and these guys is, uh, we were willing to acknowledge our dogma, right? Pragmatism is inherently anti-dogmatic. It thinks dogma is in itself illegitimate. There are no mm-hmm. questions that should be closed. You should revisit everything. Um, and we would have robust debates about where you draw the lines between our different, do- you know, our b- different dogmatic principles, like freedom versus uh, order and liberty versus virtue and all of these kinds of things. And Sometimes the things got testy is like between say Harry Jaffa and, and William F. Buckley or really Harry Jaffa and Harry everybody. Jaffa and anybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and sometimes some people were kicked out of the conversation in the sense of like, uh, uh, not how uh, Ayn Rand, um, you know, and mm-hmm. you can debate whether that was legitimate or not. And that's fine. That's gone in a large part in the public posture yeah. of conservatism, the firing line pose, uh, uh you know, attitude where they would have robust intra-conservative debates maybe the the high watermark of this was actually the debates over the panama canal where you had reagan on one side and george will on the other side and they were serious and they were well-intentioned and now because of the tribalism that has taken over the right there is this idea that 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 not only is conservatism about power as you were discussing earlier but that if you disagree with the tactics about achieving power, you're not a real conservative, which is logically ridiculous. And so I just think that like conveying that sense that, you know, right now there was a robust debate among the eggheads, among conservatives about, you know, nationalism versus not nationalism and, you know, the stuff that, you know, Ka- that, that Orrin Cass is doing and mm-hmm. that Sora Mari is about. That's a real debate. But there's no venue for it to show Americans, never mind conservatives, that there is no one, and you know, there's no monocausal, mono explanation for what conservatism is. And I think part of the effort of getting back to what you're talking about, about being productive, is bringing that spirit back. That was the idea I had behind the corner when I invented the corners to show that there's a lot of heterogeneity on the right. And talk to a normal, educated person outside of our little world, then tell them that and they would be shocked. Yeah, I think I think this is an enormously important point, and and it's, as you say, it, it's been part of the power of the right for a long time. It's power to uh, appeal to smart younger people, and recruitment is always essential for any political movement. It's power to appeal to a broader public, you, to to make it clear that there's really a, a a kind of sane and often even humble attitude about what can be achieved by public policy, and the set of questions that result from that. Um, are about constraints as much as they are about uh, first principles and goals. And in in the Trump era, I mean, in part because it has been impossible to talk about anything related to public policy. Um, and that's a function both, I think, of a kind of cult of personality, but also this sense that giving any ground to the left is the worst thing we could do. And so- right. Let's not show that we disagree among ourselves. That's a, that's a way of suggesting that we may not be right. Um, and you know, the, the 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 this period has just been devoid of policy conversations. I mean, the, the Republican Party literally had no platform in the 2020 election. 
not symbolically. It, it actually didn't have one for the first time. Oh, they since claim was, they just ran the one from 2016 and put yeah, a new cover on it. About, think, okay. Yeah, but, but uh, I mean, really, if you actually think about that and read the one from 2016, it's a very bizarre way to make a case yeah. for the re-election of the sitting president. Uh, and in any case, had very little to do with with the, the real challenges the country faced as as we approach this election. And there's just not a lot of internal debate about any public policy question. There's not been much on the agenda of the party. There's not a sense of, well, okay, if you could do, if you had all the power, what would you do? I think the answer to that implicitly right now is we would hold all the power. We would keep the left from crushing right. us. And look, keep the left from crushing us is an important part of what politics is about. But it's not the important part. It's not, it's not the case you could make to the country, and it's not what matters most. And so I, I think the, the loss of the capacity to have that kind of argument, it's both an internal argument and an outward-facing argument about what you would do to improve things, to address problems, to speak to people's concerns. Um, that absolutely has to be recovered in the coming years. And obviously, I, you, know, you and I have a kind of professional interest in that, I mean, you know, the, the tomato growers will say more tomatoes are the solution to America's problems. And so <laughs> right, no, I'm inclined enough, yeah. to say more think tank work will help a lot. But it's not think tank work. I mean, I, I think ultimately the, the recovery of, a, of a, a robust debate and competition of ideas on the right is just absolutely essential for making the right constructive. Without it, we have nothing to offer but a negative answer to whatever it is that the left happens to offer. All right. I, I, I didn't mean to hijack that with my monologue, but I'm, I'm glad I got your answer. I want to go back to what you were saying about Congress, though. All right. So this is, you know, if you had a bingo card for a remnant, you'd know that this is, you know, right next to uh, your name and stuff about institutions and then stuff about my dog. There, one of the squares would be how Congress has abdicated its power and that it's the Supreme Branch. And, and maybe for the really big bingo card, you'd have something about how the notion that their co-equal branches is, is nonsense. Mm -hmm. Um, I listened to a bunch of the floor speeches off and on over the last couple of days. It was amazing to me how many Republicans, how many Democrats who control the house, right? I mean, uh, uh, were saying how outrageous this was that the executive branch would attack a co-equal branch of government and they use co-equal, co-equal, co-equal. Now, long-time listeners know that, Co-equal is basically Nixonian propaganda that comes out of fighting off the impeachment effort. If you read the Federalist Papers, I think the word co-equal appears seven times. It never refers to the three branches being co-equal. It only refers to, um, it only uses basically co-equal either between how the House and Senate are co-equal or how the federal government and the state governments are co-equal, right? But no executive right versus the legislative branch being co-equal. Do you have a like pithy explanation about where this just sort of what is the actual story? When when did Congress decide? Um, does it start with Wilson? Does it start with TR? When did Congress decide that it didn't want to be the supreme branch of government anymore? And um, how much of a blow is that to the more basic? vision of the founding fathers who never would have thought that the house would voluntarily relinquish that kind of power and that kind of primacy in our political system. Yeah. 
So this is sort of catnip for me. I have to be careful now not to speak for a full hour, but and <laughs> I, I, I wrote a piece once for National Review called uh, Co-Equal is My Trigger Word, which takes up a lot of this uh, history too. And I, I think that th- there's a very powerful assumption in the, in the thinking of the framers and in the Federalist Papers and in the, in the constitutional debates that the danger the system would face is that the legislature would want all the power. That, mm-hmm. that was the assumption that in different ways, both Madison and Hamilton clearly make in the Federalist, that the legislature will want to, to govern and rule by itself, and the other branches needed to somehow be armed defensively against it. But they both are also very clear that that could not possibly achieve anything like co-equal status, and shouldn't. That ultimately what it meant to be a republic is that the legislature was at the center of things. And if you think about how the institutions work, the, the, the legislature really frames laws for the future. The, the president then acts in the present within that framework, and the courts review past actions uh, in, in accordance with that framework. But it's really Congress that builds. It's Congress that governs. Um, and I think there's no getting away from that in our system. But as presidents became more, um, I mean, it's easy to say it starts with Wilson. It's also true, I think, that it basically starts with Wilson. You can see this in Woodrow Wilson's work as a political scientist well before he was president, well before he was governor of New Jersey or anything, uh, making the argument that the, the United States needed to modernize its government. And what he meant by that was basically empower a strong executive to really govern on its behalf. Wilson argued that the president is the only truly representative figure in our, in our government because he's elected by everybody. I think that's absolutely wrong. Our, our mm-hmm. colleague Phil Wallach has done a lot of great work on this question, making the argument that Congress is representative precisely because it is a, uh, a plural organization. It is not a single person. It represents the plurality of the United States, and that's what it would mean to have a representative politics not to pick one person by a small majority, but to actually represent the differences that exist in our society in a way that allows them to be involved in governing the country. But the story of how that has become lost is, is at least a hundred year story. And I think it was gradual at first. Um, you know, the, the, we on the right like to complain about the administrative state and rightfully so, but Congress created the administrative state. It, it's not actually um, an example of presidential over-assertion all of that is power that was given to the president by Congress on purpose. Um, and where you find both presidents and courts overreaching, what you're really looking at is Congress underreaching, creating a vacuum that, on purpose that it wants the other branches to fill. And by this point, a lot of it happens because members don't want the responsibility to make tough decisions. They don't want to be blamed for uh, doing something unpopular. They don't want to be blamed for things that don't work out. And so they pass very, very vague legislation and then expect the, the administrative agencies to figure it out and the courts will clean it up if it goes wrong. And Congress just gets to say nice stuff that voters like to hear. And, you know, it's just more fun that way. I, I think a recovery of the sense that the purpose of Congress, not just to govern the country, I, I don't think public policy is the fundamental purpose of government, which is a, a longer mm-hmm. question. But the, the, the purpose of Congress is to enable some of the deepest political differences in our society to reach accommodation, not to be solved or resolved, 
but to be negotiated out. And the only way to really address those kinds of problems in a society like ours, if it's going to remain a free society, is through bargaining and accommodation and negotiation. And that can only happen in Congress. So that I think a recovery of the constitutional system in a way that will serve the country has got to start with a recovery of Congress, a recovery of its basic function, which has been lost, and a sense of how it could achieve that function today. That's where, I mean, just to, to plug AI, I mean, that's where a lot of our work on this front at AI is going to be focused in the next few years. We've done a lot of hiring on that front. And our focus really is on helping conservatives see that the next phase of constitutionalism has got to be centered on Congress and on a recovery, a revitalization of the primary institution of our system of government. Yeah. So, I mean, I've written a lot about this. I don't know if I've talked about it much on here, but I think part, you ever read Randolph Bourne on the difference between the state and the government? It's been a right? while. So, yeah. But yeah, but Randolph Bourne makes this, you know, and for years I used to just think it was a dumb libertarian talking point that mm-hmm. war is the health of the state thing. But, um, it's actually a really profound insight is that, you know, it's very much like what you're saying now or what uh, Ben Sass said at the beginning of the Kavanaugh yeah. hearings, that politics is what happens in Congress. That's what it's there for is to adjudicate mm-hmm. and yell at each other and work out our differences. And, and Bourne's argument was that government is this thing that you're allowed to criticize. It's just, oh, it's those clowns in Washington and, it's, and they're doing sausage making and politics and they're compromising and blah, 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 blah. And it's, it's just part of the sort of Oakshadian larger conversation of American life and American politics and sort of the center forum for it. Bourne's argument was that during war, all of a sudden, government goes invisible and emerges, and from it emerges the state, which is this avatar and representative, representative of, of our hopes, our dreams, our highest principles, our historic memory. It's the thing that we're all supposed to march and step and work around towards larger goals and to win. Blah, blah. It's basically, the, in evolutionary psychology terms, it triggers that, that thing in our brains that says there's an external threat, we must all band together, right? Which is basically the core meaning of fascism is strength in numbers. And I think that that's one of the, so this is what I was getting, what I was hinting at about what does this say about the vision of the founders? I, I, one of a historical question, but two, I have just this more basic point. I think one of the things that's really come clear to me in the last four years is that part of our brains are just more wired to think of an individual leader as our real leader. Um, and if you look at political systems going back 10,000 years, most of them were around individual men, essentially, who were the father of the tribe, of the family, or whatever. And the f- so and i so i'm curious one is i know in the federalist papers they talk about the tyranny of the republic the 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 parliament of venice or the congress of venice as an example of how congress can become a legislator can become tyrannical but what was it that given all of the other historical evidence going back to caesar that suggested strong men are really more dangerous and more likely to be dangerous than legislatures what was it in the recent English past, I assume, that convinced them, no, no, the real concern is that the legislature is going to be too powerful? You know, the striking thing about the, the constitutional debates is how much of them are a response to the recent American past um, uh-huh. and not just the recent English past. 
And if you think about American government in the wake of the revolution, but also in some ways in the lead up to the revolution, um, what you found a lot of the time is executive weakness and uh, a, a certain kind of wildness in the work of the state legislatures. That's where Madison's concerns about democracy as opposed to republicanism comes from, the sense that what democracy means is a mob and mm-hmm. that there need to be a lot of constraints on the, the tendency of our politics to become a mob um, and not so much the tendency of our politics to become uh, to, 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 to come under the rule of a single strongman. Even if you think about English politics in that period, it's true the Americans directed their complaints to the king. And if you read the Declaration of Independence, you think, well, King George III was a terrible guy. He's doing all these things. All those things were done by parliament. Um, Mm. And it was understood. I mean, obviously, the king was much more of an actual political figure in Britain in the 18th century than would be the case today with, with the British monarch. But they understood that ultimately the policies they were fighting against, even the army they were fighting against, were functions of parliament, at least as much as of the king. There was obviously a strong faction in American politics that was very concerned about royalism and that was concerned that the Constitution was a move in that direction and accused Alexander Hamilton with some justice of (laughs) wanting an excessively strong executive um, but there was also, and especially among the Federalists themselves, a, a sense that a country couldn't be governed well if there wasn't some constraint on the tendency of legislative government to get out of control. And the, the, the worry that in a Republican government, that the, the legislature, because it's most representative of the people, would become a kind of wild democratic body is a very powerful worry in the thinking of, of really everyone involved in the formation of the Constitution. Um, and it, it was ultimately a, a concern about something like what we would call populism, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the sense that our kind of politics inclines to devolve into popular passion, and so it has to be somehow checked by, um, by modes of order, by sources of structure and order. Now, they also acknowledged that that the legislature is the source of the legitimacy of the government. Uh, they did believe in republicanism, and in that sense, in, in democracy too. Um, and so this was a, legislature, a legislatively oriented government, but that orientation created a situation where there needed to be some restraint, some control. And so I think the, the way to think about our government is as, as having a legislature at its center but then having a set of other institutions that exist to offset some of the dangers and risks of legislative government. And it's, it's worked pretty well in that way. I think it works much less well when the legislature is not at its center and when some basic questions about legitimacy become real problems. You know, ultimately, you can't really govern from the executive branch without also making laws from the executive mm-hmm. branch because you can't govern without legislating. And what the administrative state really is, is ex- an exercise of legislative power without legislative forms. And in that sense, it's not legitimate. All right. So we're just about out of time here. Um, I could do this for a good while longer. Um, uh, so one of the questions we got from the Demos, um, I think you've already answered, but you can take a shot at this. 
Uh, how close have you gotten to Charles Murray levels of despondency about America? I.e., are you at the point where America now seems to be effectively a second world, unexceptional country? I think you can't answer that, but you can take off on that. But also, I wanted to ask you, um, can you think of any historical examples of institutions that have become radically distrusted and then regaining popular trust? Hmm. Well, those are two good questions. I, I'm I'm not at Charles Murray levels of despondency, but that is not saying much. Um, no, I know that's that's very low bar. <laughs> I, I, I I don't I don't think America is a second world country, and I don't think it's become unexceptional. Um, I, I think we're in a we're in a dark phase of our politics, without question, and a phase that leaves a lot to be desired, and a lot to be ashamed of, and a lot to be fixed. But w- we are America. We are that special country that in trying to fix its problems, can hold up a vision of its own best self as a model of what to become. And that is an enormous advantage we have over a lot of other modern societies, both in terms of the ideals we can point to, which are important. But, you know, our country is not just a set of ideals. It's also an actual society with an actual history, with actual people who belong to each other as fellow citizens. And in that history, there's an enormous amount for us to point to. Um, both as a source of hope and as a model for action. And that points to the second question. Yes, I mean, I do think there are examples. That, there are some modern examples in our own time. For example, if you, uh, if you asked Americans, do you trust the American military in the early 1970s, the numbers would have been very low, much lower than was the case for most other institutions. And that's reversed now. A lot of other institutions have lost the public's trust, but the military has a lot more trust than it used to. I don't think that that is just a function of the military's being good at its job of defending the country, which it is good at. I, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that the military is an unabashedly formative institution that makes men and women better than they were before, and that that is a model of what it would mean for institutions to recover the public's trust. It would mean having a core ethic that people within the institution clearly take seriously. If that were the case in the academy or in journalism or in our politics, those institutions would have a real shot at rebuilding public trust. I also think there's there are models of a broader recovery. You know, Robert Putnam has a a new book out called The Upswing that basically makes the case that it's true the last seven decades have been a decline from a period of very high trust, but the, the 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 half century before that was a period of growing trust, of increasing confidence in American institutions. Some of that, he says, was a function of the Depression and the two world wars and the war is the health of the state and all that. But some of it was also a function of a concerted effort to build and rebuild institutions, to build and rebuild public trust, to respond to public problems by, uh, by building rather than by tearing down. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. If you think about America in the late 19th century, which was a low point for, for trust in all kinds of institutions. We don't have public opinion data, but it seems that way. Um, that was a period when Americans, after a while, a long while of letting things fester, ended up responding by building institutions, not just in government, where I think not all of that was done well. But, you know, think about the universities that we now take to be elite institutions and think have always been around. Some of those are Ivy League schools that have been around for 250 years. But the University of Chicago, America's best university, uh, Stanford, <laughs> Duke, Uh, Johns Hopkins, these universities came to be in the late 19th century in response to dissatisfaction with Harvard and Yale and and Princeton and Penn. 
a dissatisfaction that's actually very similar to the kind of dissatisfaction we now feel about our elite institutions, and where people responded not just by complaining, but also by trying to build something together. I, I think that a phase that looks like that, an era of reform and building, is entirely imaginable in our society. And I think that there, there is a, now a greater recognition that the problem we face looks like a failure to do that than there was even a few years ago. And so I do have some hope that that can happen, but it would take a lot of work and it would take a, a willingness to see that that's the problem. And therefore, we each have a role to play in fixing that problem. I wouldn't say we're there, but this is America. So I do believe we can get there. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a cheery and upbeat way place to end it. And uh, I'm sure, you know, we got to get you back so you can get the gold jacket. So, you know, we can revisit some of these issues down the road. Um, Yuval, thanks for coming on. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Okay, so uh, Yuval has gone, and um, I should have mentioned in the intro, I just kind of feel like all the listeners know who he is, and I certainly know who he is, but he's also the editor of National Affairs, which is a great journal. It's, it's, the, it's the reincarnation in many ways of the public interest, different in important ways because it's a different time, and Yuval is not um, purely a creature of nostalgia or anything like that. But it's got some of, some of the same spirit to it. And it's a great, on its own, it's just a great and influential journal. And if you're really into public policy, you should look at national affairs. Um, um, I, I don't think Yuval would take offense of this. But if you're not into public policy, or if you're not into weighty issues of politics and philosophy and that kind of thing, you probably shouldn't subscribe to national affairs. Or at least, the very least you should check it out first before subscribing. Um, actually reminds me, there's a funny story. The old PI, when I, old public interest, when I was friends with those guys, I used to go there for lunch all the time. Um, Ira Carnahan, who was a friend of mine, was for a while the editor, and he was a little on the quirky side in terms of editorial tastes, and he agreed to run this piece by this guy. His last name was Snyder. I can't remember his first name. Um, and the essay was called a nation of cowards and it made this very principled very passionate case that basically everybody should be armed because the first form of private property is self-ownership and you have a right to defend yourself and yada 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 and it got i don't know diogenes and pliny the elder and all these kinds of things it was a very moving uh very robust thing and george will back when newsweek was like a thing um wrote his back page column on this nation of cowards piece about why we should all be armed. And the second amendment is the most important amendment and rah, 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 gun rights and all that kind of thing. And again, this is the 1990s when this was a much more controversial thing to argue. And the public interest got inundated with requests for subscriptions because they thought it was like a gun magazine kind of thing. <laughs> and I just always love the image of people expecting you know, week after week, or, or I should say quarter after quarter of, you know, thunderous vein popping things about the need to be armed and the importance of militias, and instead getting, you know, essays about the importance of bond issues for rapid transit reform. Just <laughs> um, like, you know, it's like sort of the egghead equivalent of in the jerk when Steve Martin says, you know, there are snails on her plate. Bring me those toasted cheese sandwiches you talked us out of. Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. 
Um, I don't know what we'll put in the show notes, but it'll be something. And let's hope things, let's hope Yuval is right a little bit about his, um, his optimism and, or at least his hopefulness. And my apologies if I end up writing that G file that you've already heard the thesis here, but that's just one of the, the perks of listening to the remnant. So I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.